When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies, like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Last January, when the reports were coming out of China, and they were scattered reports, right? There was all kinds of sketchy information on social media, some in newspapers, but I was doing the math, and the math was very concerning. It all still pointed to a catastrophic pandemic that was coming for the United States. And the challenge was the Centers for Disease Control's messaging was very different. Uh, The messaging at that time was there is no risk to the United States, but my math showed something else. That was Dr. Charity Dean. In early 2020, she was one of the first voices to sound the alarm about COVID, and she's the heroine of Michael Lewis's new book about the pandemic, The Premonition. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. As the number two person in the California Department of Public Health, Dr. Dean urged the state to take action to stop the disease back in January and February, but her efforts were ignored. And then she began working with a group of doctors who called themselves the Wolverines, At various times, they had all served in the White House and had banded together to help the United States deal with the disease outbreak. Soon, Dr. Dean was able to persuade California to enact strong anti-COVID measures. Today, Dr. Dean is CEO and co-founder of the Public Health Company, which helps businesses, healthcare providers, and public health systems combat and contain infectious diseases. Listen and learn why Dr. Charity Dean is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. I'm here today with Dr. Charity Dean, one of the first people to sound the alarm about the COVID pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Dean. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
Well, let me ask you all about uh, how you sounded the alarm and what you were trying to accomplish and exactly what did you do? Sure. Well, the truth is it's difficult to sound an alarm in the United States public health system because local health officers are really the most critical pieces of the system. And the role of the state is to support the local health officers. And the role of the CDC is to support the states and the local health officers. And so last January, when the reports were coming out of China, and they were scattered reports, right? There was all kinds of sketchy information on social media, some in newspapers. I was watching it very carefully, and I was starting to do math imperfect math because you never have all the information that you want at the beginning of a communicable disease outbreak. But I was doing the math and the math was very concerning because even mathing out the most conservative estimates based on the information coming from China, it all still pointed to a catastrophic pandemic that was coming for the United States. And sharing that information with others who do not live and breathe uh, communicable disease control was really challenging because the truth is at the beginning of an outbreak, it's at least 30%, sometimes 50% instinct that you're operating on because you don't have all the definitive, conclusive evidence that you would like. So you have to combine dirty math with making some assumptions with a strong knowledge of how outbreaks move and experience and all of that points in a direction. And the conclusion that you draw, it might be terrifying to those who don't do this every day, but to those of us who are well-versed in disease control, the conclusion was obvious that this was a pandemic. And where were you sitting at the time? What was your position? I was the assistant director of the California Department of Public Health, which means that I was the number two health official for the state of California. And were there others who were coming up with comparable evidence or were you truly sounding the alarm for the country and everyone who would listen? Well, when I met Carter Mesher and the other um, gentlemen that were part of Red Dawn or the Wolverines, as they called themselves, that was the first time that I had a conversation with anyone else who was thinking along the same lines. Interesting. And then well, what sort of obstacles did you face? Did officials take you seriously? If not, how did you overcome their skepticism? Uh, how did that go? That's a great question because that was the challenge in late January as I was making epidemiological curves on my whiteboard. I was using assumptions. And for example, watching what was happening in Wuhan on social media where they were um, locking people into apartments and they were building tent hospitals over a few days led me to the conclusion that the assumptions I had to use for the epi curve had to assume this was airborne. This had an R naught of at least two, if not 2.53 or four, that it must have a fatality rate of at least 1%, hospitalization rate of at least 20%. And so the mathematical assumptions that went into the very rough epi curve that I was drawing out on my whiteboard were, were somewhat conservative, and yet the curve showed a catastrophic tsunami of cases that were probably already circulating in the United States. And as I showed that and tried to explain that to others within government, 
it was challenging because exponential growth is really hard for humans to wrap their brain around. And unless you've been obsessed with the exponential growth of airborne pathogens your whole life, um, hearing it for the first time feels nonsensical. And so I felt like I was butting up against um, shock and denial just because it's a very natural reaction the first time you're oriented to the exponential growth of an airborne pathogen. And so I wasn't getting very far. I was pretty discouraged. Um, It was met with skepticism and disbelief. And the challenge was the Centers for Disease Control's messaging was very different. Uh, The messaging at that time was there is no risk to the United States, but my math showed something else. Well, then how did you overcome all the skepticism? What finally happened to enable you to break through? I mean, the true answer is I didn't. The skepticism remained and I largely failed at trying to get the knowledge of what was happening translated into early tactical interventions in January and February. And the United States shot at containment ended somewhere around the end of February. And what I mean by that is while I was, um, you know, trying to share this message and um, show the exponential growth, community spread was already happening. And I knew it. I knew community spread was happening across California. Um, We have two major airports. We have Los Angeles and we have San Francisco. And doing, again, very simple math of how many travelers were coming into those airports from China each day starting in December showed that there were inevitably already cases circulating in California. And if you take the R-naught or the rate at which it spreads, and let's say an R-naught of three, so for each infectious individual, they're going to infect three other people. And if the time to do that is one week and you math it forward week by week by week, by February, there were already potentially thousands of cases in California. And so the reason why I say I failed is my goal is containment. I don't want to manage an outbreak. I don't want to mitigate a catastrophe. I want to stop it. I want to contain it in the beginning. And to do that, you have to act quickly when the cases are not evident, when very few people have died. And so our chance in California at containing this really ended the end of February. And when uh, when I was part of the modeling team that crafted the model, the computer model that motivated the governor to issue the statewide stay-at-home order uh, on March 19th, by that point, it was too late to contain this in California. Our, our chances to contain it were gone. And from that point on, it was going to be a game of managing it. Wow. Well, now you mentioned the Wolverines. Um, I guess that was a group of doctors who you joined. Can you tell us about the Wolverines? <laughs> sure. Well, it all started with a very odd call from Dwayne Caneva, who had kind of been um, at odds with me. You know, Dwayne worked for President Trump and I worked for Governor Newsom. So our bosses were very much at odds in their um, political agendas and viewpoints. And so up to that point, Dwayne and I had gone toe to toe over uh, issues around migrant health at the border of California and Mexico. But what was interesting is that day that he called me, 
there was something different in his voice. And I could tell from that difference in his voice that this was really important and that Dwayne might just be putting his job on the line. And that got my attention. And when he told me about this group and the Red Dawn email chains, he said, I'm just going to forward you a string of emails and I want you to read it and see what you think. And then get back to me because if any of that resonates, we'd love to have you on a phone call. So I said, okay. And I sat down and began reading the emails. And the meat and potato of the emails was really Carter Mesher, who was mathing out in a much more eloquent style than I had exactly what was going to happen in the United States and precisely how many cases there probably were. And at what point we had a shot at containment and had drawn the same conclusions that I had, which is there is no way to stop this. Uh, This is a fast moving brush fire. And it is really, really important that states take the lead right now because the federal government is not going to. And when was that phone call from the uh, Trump administration representative? I don't remember the actual date. Michael Lewis probably knows the actual date because he and I went back through this in in detail. In fact, what's funny is he later went back and found the email that Dwayne Caniva sent out to the Wolverines after he'd spoken with me. Um, But I don't remember what the date was. But it was already much later than it should have been. Exactly. It was early February. And so it was during the time when we still had a shot at containment, but the window for containment was closing quickly. We knew it was literally a matter of weeks. In a matter of weeks, the United States was going to lose any shot they had at containment. And so when I read through Carter's emails, I had a sense of urgency, but also a sense of duty to align with this group of people because I looked up their profiles and these were not, you know, some random people off the street. These were the experts that would have been in the White House on the pandemic team had there been one. And so, you know, I I always took my oath very seriously, the oath I took when I was um, brought into office um, to defend and protect the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I always included in that, in my mind, microbiological. I always thought, you know, that includes viruses and bacteria too. And if my If the oath I took means I will go to any length to defend our communities from any threat, then this is absolutely what I need to do is align with this group of very smart individuals who know what they're talking about and they're doing the same math I am and see if we can come up with a strategy um, to tip the scales in our favor. And when you did uh, join up with them, did you see more progress or were the obstacles still all over the path that you were trying to journey through? At that time, it felt like an impossible obstacle course with massive hurdles. And the biggest hurdle was convincing the decision makers and policy setters above me in the organizational chart that we needed to take action right now. And that this was not an either or of saving lives and protecting the economy. This was a this was a both or neither. In other words, if we acted aggressively right now to contain to find the cases, which meant we were going to have to ignore the CDC and FDA's mandate that only the CDC's test could be used, we would have to go rogue from the CDC, boldly stand up our own testing ability, 
deploy it across the state so that we could find the cases and then boldly start containing them. Even before we saw massive deaths or hospitalizations, and that if we did that, if we were brave enough to do that, we'd not only save lives, but we'd save the economy. And of course, we all know the tragic outcome from that, um, that not only did COVID-19 cause massive loss of life, but it caused massive loss of economy as well. And so in those early days uh, with the Wolverines in early February, our mission was to try and get this message to the most uh, willing decision maker to understand what needed to be done. And that's why I say in large part, it felt like we were failing at it, trying to break through all the hurdles. Um, fast forwarding a month later, we were successful in, in some of those efforts in that the Red Dawn email chain began pulling in um, influencers in other states as well. So my counterparts in other states joined the email chain, joined the phone calls, and we were successful. I guess if you look at the larger picture of the states that took early inter- interventions, you know, led by California. Um, were largely influenced by people that were part of the Wolverines group. And, you know, to Governor Newsom's credit, he is an incredible decision maker. And when he was presented with the mathematical computer generated model that showed exactly what was going to happen in California, um, he was he was moved to do the right thing. He did the right thing immediately. And that was so heartening to see. And it gave all of us hope that, in fact, California could lead the nation. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
Now, all of this, I, I gather, is accounted for in Michael Lewis's new book, The Premonition. And you are the heroine of The Premonition. What was it like to read it? What was the process like in his writing it? Um, what can you tell us about it? Well, it felt like a very long process to me. <laughs> uh, he contacted me in May, and I, quite frankly, didn't know who he was. Um, I've lived in a bubble of microbiology, public health, and public service, and uh, had heard of one of his movies, but had had never read any of his books. Um, and so as I began to educate him about microbiology and public health, I, I realized what an enormous undertaking that would be. You know, here's someone who's incredibly smart and deeply understands other sectors like sports and the financial sector, but was totally clueless about public health and microbiology and had some preconceived ideas that many people had, like the CDC is in charge. And as he started to learn how public health works and realized actually local health officers are in charge and actually local health officers are the most critical part of public health, it was so revolutionary for his thinking paradigm um, because it challenged all of those assumptions that the CDC will save us. And so it was it was really a journey of of teaching and showing him how public health works and telling him stories from my own experience and not just public health systems, but also microbiology. You know, there was one funny conversation where he was trying to articulate back to me a concept I had, was teaching him and he screwed up virus and bacteria. He called something, I think he called tuberculosis a virus. And I stopped him and I said, no, you have to get this right. You cannot screw up virus and bacteria. It's a very critical distinction. And we both really laughed because it was just obvious how enormous the undertaking was that, you know, he essentially by the end of it had the equivalent of a degree in microbiology and public health. And he had to do all of that in a very short period of time. That's fascinating. Well, how did he how did he come to write the book? Did he tell you what intrigued him, how he uh, came to know about you? Um, I know that he was poking around in the federal government to try and find out, as I now know him very well and, and know his book and books and work very well, I know that his strategy is to try and find the real story. He doesn't want the talking points. He doesn't want the political optics from those at the top. He wants to find the people inside of government that actually know what happened and what to do. And so I know that he had been put in touch with the Wolverines and that they had referred him to me. And I know he was also speaking with DJ Patil, who was one of his characters in uh, The Fifth Risk. And it just so happened that I was on the modeling team with DJ. And so DJ had mentioned my name as well. And then I know he was also speaking with Joe DeRisi at Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, who I was also working with, trying to stand up genomic epidemiology for the state. And so my understanding is that a number of those contacts had told him that he needed to speak with me, but he had no way to get a hold of me. So it took him a, a few months to find me. And then when he did get a hold of me, I was kind of like, who the hell are you? And uh, why, sh why should I be talking to you? And then you proceeded with your lessons on Biology 101. That's right. But thanks to his curiosity, we now all can read uh, The Premonition and know much more about this 
uh, this amazing saga. I, I want to ask you a little bit about Dr. Dean. Uh, what was it in your growing up that made you the remarkable woman you are today? How did you get interested in all of this? Well, it kind of goes back to the question you asked about how I feel about being in the book. Um, I have mixed feelings about it because it tells a lot of the painful parts of my life story. And none of my colleagues know that. And the people that I work with today in government don't know my backstory. I think they assume I probably come from a family of means that gave me every educational opportunity. And the truth is the opposite. Um, I grew up in a very poor rural farming community in Oregon, and my parents did not have college degrees, um, but they were very focused on me getting an education and really encouraging me to do what they had never been able to do and going to college. And I became obsessed with outbreaks and disease as a young child and loved reading about um, all kinds of horrific diseases, you know, mm. bubonic plague and the pandemic of 1918, um, tuberculosis, cholera, Ebola was one of my favorites, rabies, rabies is another good one. And so I had to overcome just so many things just to try and get into college. And I was discouraged at every direction. Um, but, you know, a, a big issue for me was um, the extreme religious cultural beliefs of the church that we went to, where women were essentially groomed and raised and trained to be housewives. And going to college was seen as somewhat rebellious, especially a four-year college. You could go to college if you were going to be a teacher or uh, assume a position within the church, like a secretary or organizing children's camps. But to go to college to study microbiology and become a doctor was seen as somewhat disobedient and rebellious. And so I personally was fighting my own demons in that journey, because I knew I was gaining the disapproval of, you know, the culture around the church. And so that was really, really difficult. And, you know, for people that are not familiar with that culture, um, it is incredibly, I, I can't say enough how incredibly um, difficult it is for young women who have known nothing else their whole lives but that kind of oppressive culture of extreme religious groups, it's nearly impossible for young women to break out of that because to do that means that you have to be willing to be abandoned by your tribe and to walk away from the friends and the community that you've known mm. and to adopt a different set of values. And uh, I, you know, I still grapple with that. I'm 43 years old and I still grapple with that. Some of my close friends who I grew up with in the church uh, still don't speak to me because I chose to pursue this path. And so when I got to college and discovered microbiology, oh, I was, I was, it was enchanting. Suddenly I was learning about the micro evolution that pathogens undergo. Like, you mean, you mean they evolve every day? You mean they select for the most virulent strain and then they infect someone and cause even greater disease and spread even faster in populations. The whole thing was just absolutely fascinating to me. And I just became obsessed with tropical diseases and boldly decided I was going to medical school and not just medical school, but also 
boldly decided that I was going to do a master's in public health and tropical medicine at the same time as medical school. Now, Tulane was the only medical school in the country that allowed you to get both degrees at the same time. So then I decided I wasn't just going to do both degrees, but if I could figure out how to finish both of them in three and a half years instead of four, then I could move to Africa for the last part of medical school and actually work in a tropical country doing surgery and tropical medicine. And so that's what I did. So you were breaking barriers at a very early age and it continued. You must be a very strong, courageous in your commitment. And it's very inspiring to listen to, I might add. (laughs) Thank you. I I understand that uh, you now have a new company. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, the company was born out of my deep grief watching the systems in the United States fail. Um, I was, was so close to the issues and running it behind the scenes. And I realized even if the United States had had a rock star president who was incredibly um, forward thinking and had immediately done the right thing, even if we had had the most capable president possible, I believe the United States would still have only gotten a C minus, maybe a D plus in pandemic response. And the reason is that the fault lines of the failure for our country to contain COVID actually run all the way through the public health system. And the reason is that we don't really have a public health system. Uh, There's no centralized platform with real-time intelligence that empowers local public health officials and business owners to act quickly to protect their people. And so by June, I could not escape the conclusion that the United States of America did not have the disease control tools it needed, and not just for the public sector, but for businesses, for corporate enterprise. And I kept asking myself the question, what capability would have needed to exist in January to contain this? And not just for COVID, but for the communicable diseases that threaten businesses every day, um, you know, hepatitis and Ebola and influenza variants and norovirus. Um, and the inescapable conclusion was building a software platform that would harness all the best tools of disease control and put them into software so that no one had to wait for a government bureaucracy to tell them what to do but that private businesses and the public sector could move at the speed of technology instead of moving at the current speed of you know fax machines and email and so by august it was clear to me there was nothing else i could do i wouldn't be able to sleep at night unless i built it and so i started and the public health company is taking the very best tools of disease control and putting them into software platforms so that decision makers can have a centralized intelligence at their fingertips, have data science and communicable disease expertise and modeling. It's essentially a massive risk management for communicable diseases across a host of sectors. And we are very active right now for COVID. We've, we've built out the software platform for COVID. But what I'm really interested in is the post-COVID space and especially looking at issues like healthcare-associated infections that cost lives and billions of dollars every year. And I believe there's a better way to approach those with a technology revolution. 
Well, may you and your colleagues succeed because it's critically needed. Uh, And now that you tell us how uneven our system is, that much more a reality of how great the need is. You told us a little bit about uh, your own personal uh, struggle to get ahead in science. And it's such an important endeavor, particularly to have more women represented in the field. And we hear so much about the STEM field and the need to interest uh, younger women and to encourage them. Why is it so important to have women represented in the field? It's important to have women in the field so that when we enter, we see people who reflect us and look like us. I'll give you an example. When I walked into Tulane Medical School and I walked down the halls, massive portraits hung on the walls and they were all old white men. And I looked at those portraits and thought to myself, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. And I would love to see those portraits be portraits of women and portraits of a diverse picture that really represents the United States of America. And it's really important that women in science take on visible leadership roles so that younger girls who think to themselves, maybe I want to become a doctor feel like they belong there. They have a seat in medical school. They have a seat in microbiology and research science, and they have a seat at the table in technology that they can boldly walk into Silicon Valley as I have uh, with their scientific background and say, you know what? I'm going to stand up a new disruptive platform to revolutionize a sector that's going to save lives. And that women don't feel like they have to overcome such massive barriers to do that. Well, that's certainly a compelling case. And uh, it's so true, the importance of having role models and not to see people like yourself in positions you aspire to uh, is very discouraging. So we need more people like you, Dr. Dean, uh, and more inspiration like the inspiration you provide, uh, particularly to younger women and aspiring women. We unfortunately are reaching that point where we have to close this extraordinary conversation. But before you leave us, I I just wanted to ask you, you know, we've talked about the challenging times. We've talked specifically about uh, the challenge that you went through in trying to provide that early warning, uh, the barriers you confronted. It's been a very difficult period for the world, no less. What makes you optimistic? What gives you hope? That's a great question. Well, I'll say, you know, I will never lose hope in our beautiful democracy because I believe the very fabric of the United States was woven by people who were innovators and dreamers and were willing to fight for a new system and problem solvers. And we can't assume that the United States has every system that it needs. And what gives me hope is looking at the massive failure of the United States response to COVID. When we get into the actual cause of the failure and we see it's a systems cause, to me, that sparkles with hope. And it's because pointing at a human saying it's a president's fault or it's a governor's fault, that to me is full of despair because that means we can't change it. But when we point to a system as the cause of failure, to me, that sparkles with hope because that means that we can do what we do best in the United States, and that is get into solution fix the system, build a new system, build a new capability and software like I'm doing. Uh, 
getting into the real cause sparkles with hope because it empowers every single one of us to say, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and be part of the solution. How can I help build a new system? So I am very optimistic and full of hope that we absolutely uh, are headed in the right direction towards building a solution. That's great. And uh, certainly the call to action is really important. So thank you, Dr. Charity Dean, uh, for your commitment, uh, your inspiration, your caring, and for doing all that you're doing to improve our public health care system. It matters so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for speaking today. What a lesson in perseverance. So many people literally owe their lives to the work of Dr. Charity Dean. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, Dr. Dean shows why it's so important to have the courage of your convictions and why sometimes you have to rely on gut instinct. While others were downplaying the risks of COVID, her knowledge of epidemics combined with her instincts, revealed that the outbreak would be catastrophic. Second, Dr. Dean clearly is someone unafraid to defy the conventional wisdom of her workplace. And even her background, she had to ignore the friends and neighbors who believed women should educate themselves solely to be wives and mothers. Finally, Dr. Dean points a way toward progress. When things don't work, she says, let's not waste time pointing fingers at individuals. Instead, look at the systems we have in place and figure out how to fix them. That's where you get the long-term solutions. Tune in next Tuesday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.